It is another honor that we've each been given this Sunday afternoon to assemble and to gather in the way that we are. As I look over the audience, certainly thankful for each and every person that's here. Each of us have been so greatly blessed by God in many ways. And to come together and offer our heartfelt thanks to Him, our appreciation to Him, is certainly not only right, but it's not only a blessing, of course, for His cause and kingdom, but it's good for us as well. As I mentioned this morning, probably you even noticed in the bulletin, but as far as the lessons we're going to consider tonight, it's a continuation of a series that we began several weeks ago now at this point. The Holy Spirit, what do you know about Him? Well, we've already learned some things about Him, and so this next slide is just a very quick reminder of the three lessons we've studied so far. We have highlighted the beautiful character, have we not? That the Holy Spirit is a divine person. It's not an it. It's a him. It's a he. And therefore, all the attributes of divine personality, in fact, are to be attached to him. That's how the scriptures refer to him. Jesus again said in John 16, How be it when he, the Spirit of truth, has come, he shall guide you into all truth. For he shall not speak of himself, but that which he shall hear that shall he speak. Seven times in that one verse, Jesus referred to him with masculine pronouns. But in addition to that, the second lesson in the series, we cast a spotlight on the Holy Spirit's role in creation. First, in the physical creation of Genesis chapters 1 and 2, many references there are to the Spirit. But we also cast a spotlight on the Spirit's role in spiritual creation. Lesson number three, as you can see on the slide, we looked at what has been a somewhat controversial topic throughout the ages, namely, what is the baptism of the Holy Spirit? We devoted that third lesson to that consideration. Tonight, lesson four, the gift of the Holy Spirit. What is it? Well, may I say that a moment ago in our hearing, a verse of Scripture was read. I'd like to revisit that passage. In Acts chapter 2, verse number 38, may I ask that you think with some care as I read this. It is a passage so incredibly familiar to many of us. We have heard many sermons that have cast a spotlight on the first part of the verse. And so again it reads, Then Peter said unto them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the remission of sins, and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Ghost. It perhaps would be difficult to count the number of sermons that have emphasized repent and be baptized. Why? The verse goes on to say, verse number 38, for the remission of sins. So again, the purpose for baptism, the purpose for obedience to the Master, of course, centers around the forgiveness of sins. Again, many a lesson has emphasized the first part of that passage. May I ask your thoughts, your consideration at least, to the last sentence in the, in the verse. And ye shall receive the gift of the Holy Ghost. Here now is my question. What is this gift of the Holy Ghost? Again, we so often make reference to the first part of the verse and preach that with a power and majesty that rightly is, is to be attached to it. But how often have you heard sermons about receiving the gift of the Holy Spirit? 
it comes from the same verse. Is that something that we need to emphasize more? And so on that slide, may I ask, what is the gift of the Holy Spirit? Is that the Holy Spirit Himself? There are many in our world who teach that it is. They assert then that what Peter was preaching on that occasion basically stated to those recipients on the day of Pentecost, if you'll be baptized, you'll receive some particular measure of the Holy Spirit, which will dwell personally in you and therefore permit you to dwell and live the life of a Christian. There are some who teach that. May I ask, though, there are other questions that could be asked. Rather, is this gift of the Holy Spirit something which the Holy Spirit provides? I wonder if that's what it's referring to. To perhaps go on a little bit further, is this the forgiveness of sin? Is the gift of the Holy Spirit the same as the forgiveness of sin? That's a good question. Is the gift of the Holy Spirit something miraculous? Is it something non-miraculous? By now, you're perhaps beginning to wonder, why don't you get to the point? (laughs) You're asking all these thoughts, and may I say, I ask those things that way because many have been the assertions throughout the years, even the ages. All of them have in part been asserted in one way or the other. Perhaps it's fair to say, and this is the last idea, there is, at least in the mind of some, a wide possible diversity in explaining what is this gift of the Holy Spirit. I think tonight we're going to try to do a much better job than leave it that wide open. Could I perhaps borrow a wording from Psalm 119, verse 128? Therefore I esteem all thy precepts concerning all things to be right, and I hate every false way. Our only desire is what does the Bible say about the gift of the Holy Spirit? What I think about it is rather unimportant. What I might have heard someone say about it also is really not that relevant. But rather, what does the Word of God say about it? That'll be our task. That'll be our lovely joy throughout the course of the study tonight. And so it is. I'd like to settle one matter almost at the outset. There have been many who have thus made the claim, this gift of the Holy Spirit, so we're told, is the Holy Spirit Himself. They claim the language demands that. That isn't so. The language does not demand that interpretation. Let me make mention of a few sentences and see if you concur. I've even listed them for your consideration. Suppose someone in conversation were to make the statement, Bob received the gift of the Rotary Club. Did that mean Bob received the members of the Rotary Club as a gift? Did that mean he literally received those people as a gift? Of course not. That meant that Bob received a gift that was provided by, sponsored by, and made available by the Rotary Club. That's what that means. Or try another one. Henrietta received the gift of the senior class. Does that mean Henrietta literally received the senior class as a gift? Well, that's preposterous. Obviously, it doesn't mean that. It means, again, that she received a gift that the senior class paid for or that they made available in some way. May I say, the language of this verse does not demand that this gift of the Holy Spirit is the Holy Spirit Himself. Clearly, the language doesn't demand it. That being said, 
let's perhaps close that slide by drawing that quick conclusion. As you and I read about the gift of the Holy Spirit, don't at least at this point suppose that's the Holy Spirit Himself. Are you aware there's only two passages in all the Bible that literally have the phrase gift of the Holy Spirit in it? May I suggest we've just read one of them, Acts 2.38. The other one is in Acts chapter 10. Let me invite your attention to that one, for perhaps it may shed some light upon and help appreciate in your mind and mine the meaning of the passage before us. It's near the close of the 10th chapter of Acts. As you look at that set of verses, verse 45 will be our focus because there's where the phrase occurs. But let me begin reading in verse 44. While Peter yet spake these words, the Holy Ghost fell on all them which heard the word. And they of the circumcision which believed were astonished, as many as came with Peter, because that on the Gentiles also was poured out, and here's the phrase, the gift of the Holy Ghost. That's the only other time in all the Bible where that explicit phraseology occurs, the gift of the Holy Ghost. May I suggest then that you note this with me. As you and I read about the latter occurrence, are there any clear and quick conclusions to be drawn? You noticed it with me in verse 44. While Peter was speaking, the Holy Spirit fell on them which were listening. And verse 45 says that they who were the Jews were astonished. And it goes on to say that in verse 46, they heard them speak with tongues and magnify God. So in other words, these Gentiles, as the Holy Spirit fell upon them, they were able to speak in these languages they had never learned. They spoke in these languages they had never studied. In other words, clearly there was miraculous matters here. I believe we're coming close to our first observation. The gift of the Holy Spirit should always be appreciated as having connection to the miraculous capability and character. Let me say that again. The gift of the Holy Spirit, every occurrence or every reference to it in the book of Acts is such that it involves miraculous capability. Let's close this slide then like this. May I suggest this, at least in principle, is not the first occurrence of this kind of idea. The closing paragraph to the book of Mark also lists something very similar. That one's a bit lengthier, but I do think it appropriate to read it. In Mark chapter 16, I'm going to begin reading in verse number 14. And while you're turning there, because I would invite you to follow with me as I read it. Mark chapter 16. One more time, that has a passage which is exceedingly familiar to all of us. The Great Commission is included, but the Lord had more to say than that. Let me read it, then let's at least raise some of the matters to be noted in it. Beginning in verse 14, Afterward he appeared unto the eleven as they sat at meat, and upbraided them with their unbelief and hardness of heart, because they believed not them which had seen him after he was risen. And he said unto them, Go ye into all the world, and preach the gospel to every creature. He that believeth and is baptized shall be saved, but he that believeth not shall be damned. 
Now, I'm going to keep reading in just a moment, but I simply want to invite your attention. That is the part of this that is so familiar to us. Go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. He that believes and is baptized shall be saved, but those who do not believe, they'll be damned. They'll be condemned by the God of heaven. But may we never forget, Jesus didn't stop, did not stop talking at that point. The next verse goes right on to say this, "...and these signs shall follow them that believe. In my name they shall cast out devils." They shall speak with new tongues. They shall take up serpents. And if they drink any deadly thing, it shall not hurt them. They shall lay hands on the sick, and they shall recover. So then, after the Lord had spoken unto them, He was received up into heaven, and sat on the right hand of God. And they went forth and preached everywhere, the Lord working with them, and confirming the word with signs following. Amen." In many ways, something very similar has just taken place. We have often noted the emphasis of belief in baptism. It says it in verse 16. If you don't believe and are baptized, you cannot possibly be saved. But again, note the first word of verse 17 is and. Jesus continued right on talking. He talked about, "...these signs shall follow them that believe." In my name, they'll cast out devils. Have you and I ever cast out a devil? It goes on to say, they'll speak with new tongues. Have you ever spoke with new tongues? The next verse goes on to say, they'll take up serpents. Have you ever handled snakes as a part of worship? There are some in eastern Kentucky who do. They drag in a box full of snakes every Sunday morning, pass them around because right there it is. It says those who believe will take up serpents. Clearly, you and I don't do that. But if we believe that we're supposed to believe and be baptized, like it says in verse 16, why don't we believe verse 18? Or do we? Surely we do. Because it's the same explanation you and I have noted in Acts 2.38. Perhaps one final thing. They shall lay hands on the sick, verse number 18. If you and I laid hands on some sick person... Have we ever visited the hospital, laid on some hands, and the person's able to be discharged immediately? I've never seen that happen. I don't have that power, and neither do you. You see, the, what we're discussing tonight is critical as you and I rightly divide the Word of God. What did Jesus mean, and what did Peter mean on the day of Pentecost when he talked about this gift of the Holy Spirit? As we've already begun to learn, it appears to have relation to the miraculous, I think we can prove that using some additional verses here in just a moment. As we step a little bit more thoroughly into this gift of the Holy Spirit, may I invite your consideration to Acts 8. Let's put together the two discussions we've seen so far, Acts chapter 2 and Mark 16, and let's turn our attention to Acts the 8th chapter and see in this instance what it is that took place. As I prepare you for what we're about to read, remember Acts chapter 8 occurs obviously after Acts chapter 2, and so the church had already been established by this time. It began in Acts chapter 2, and in this chapter we have the gospel being preached. It happens to be in the area of Samaria. But beginning in verse number 12, here's what took place. 
But when they, that's the people of Samaria, believed Philip, preaching the things concerning the kingdom of God in the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized, both men and women. Let's pause. So here were individuals who had responded to the teaching of the gospel. Philip had preached it, both men and women. They believed it and were baptized. That's what the text says. So they did this very same thing that Jesus had preached in, in Mark 16. He said, He that believeth and is baptized shall be saved. So these people were saved. They obeyed the gospel. They had their sins washed away in the wonderful and watery grave of baptism. They were New Testament Christians. Let's go to the next verse. Then Simon himself believed also, and when he was baptized... He continued with Philip and wondered, beholding the miracles and signs which were done. Let me step verse by verse through this if I could. So among the people in Samaria who were baptized, there was a gentleman named Simon. Now as verse 13 informs us, Simon, upon his belief, he also was baptized. But it says, he wondered, that means he was amazed, as he beheld the miraculous things which Philip was able to accomplish. Let's go to the next verse. Now when the apostles which were at Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent unto them Peter and John, who when they were come down prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Ghost. For as yet he was fallen upon none of them, only they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. So at this point, don't lose sight, please, with me, what we've just seen. Here were individuals in Samaria. Philip had preached to them. They believed the preaching of Philip, and they were baptized, and they were saved. But there was still a matter lacking, at least for those of that day. You'll notice that these individuals, particularly Simon, he looked at and observed the miraculous things Philip was able to accomplish. But in that context, we readily know the congregation at Jerusalem heard something. They heard, the text says, that that church there in Samaria had received the Word of God, and it says they sent unto them Peter and John. Have you ever wondered why Peter and John needed to be sent? Philip was already there, and he was already doing a great work. Men and women had been baptized. Individuals had responded to the gospel's call of invitation. Why did Peter and John need to go? The explanation is right before us. Look at the next verse with me. Verse 15, Who, when they were come down, prayed for them, that they might receive the Holy Ghost. Problem was, though Philip was there preaching, and certainly he could preach the gospel, and that he was doing very successfully, the text says that the individuals that were there had not yet received the Holy Spirit. The explanation in verse 16 is, He was not yet fallen upon them. They had only been baptized. Verse 17 is critical. Then laid they their hands on them, and they received the Holy Ghost. The critical matter that was necessary was the laying on of the hands of Peter and John. And upon their laying on of hands of those baptized saints, then those saints would be the recipients of the gift of the Holy Spirit. 
So please note, this gift of the Holy Spirit had nothing to do with their salvation. They had already been baptized. They were saved from their sin. They were on the way to heaven. They just had not received the capability of miraculous measures of the Holy Spirit. May I submit to you, I think we have come to a point of drawing some interesting conclusions. Did you note one more thing? Who was it that had to come from Jerusalem? Notice Philip was the one already there. May I ask, was Philip an apostle? Among the list of the twelve apostles, was Philip one of them? No, he was not. In Matthew chapter 10, when that list is given, you and I remember Peter, Andrew, James, and John, Philip, Bartholomew, Thomas, and Matthew, to name the first eight. But notice... As you give thought to them, the Philip under discussion here is not any Philip that was in that list. Turn back to Acts chapter 6. In Acts chapter 6, we have a listing of the details of a problem that occurred in the early church. Those widows, the Grecian widows, were being neglected in the daily ministration. But verse 5, the answer to that issue was this, And the saying pleased the whole multitude, and they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Ghost, and Philip, and Prochorus, and Nicanor, and Timon, and Parmenas, and Nicholas, a proselyte of Antioch. The Philip that's mentioned there is the same Philip that went down to Samaria and preached. He was not an apostle. He was just an ordinary individual, a man of that first century, who had been selected as a deacon, if you please, in Acts chapter 6. He was not an apostle. Therefore, you and I put those together and notice, only the apostles could lay their hands on someone and impart the miraculous measures of the Holy Spirit. May I again say, only the apostles could do that. So remember, Philip was laboring in Samaria. He himself could work miracles, but he could not transmit the power to anybody else. That was the restriction. That was the way God set that up. Therefore, Peter and John, who were apostles, had to come from Jerusalem, and they could lay their hands and thus impart the miraculous measures of the Holy Spirit. I've asked you to notice in 1 Timothy 4.14, we have a later reference to an occurrence much like this. As Paul wrote to Timothy, remember Timothy wasn't an apostle either, but Paul was. And in that passage, we encounter the following. Paul writing said, Neglect not the gift, there's our word, that is in thee which was given thee by prophecy, with the laying on of the hands of the presbytery. How was this gift given? It says, by the laying on of the hands of the presbytery. That is to say, Paul apparently laid his hands on Timothy and thus imparted to him the miraculous measures of the Holy Spirit. Or to say that differently, the gift of the Holy Spirit. Now, looking at all of that this way, we've thus learned that in Acts chapter 2, verse 38, you and I need to make sure to rightly divide that verse. Repent and be baptized. Every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the remission of sins. And that, of course, would last throughout all the ages to the end of time. Everybody will need to repent and be baptized in order to be saved. But for the people of that day, 
they lived in a day and in an age and time when there was still miraculous characteristics available. And thus, to those of that day, and ye shall receive the gift of the Holy Ghost. How? That was explained later in Acts. It would come by the laying on of the hands of an apostle, namely Acts chapter 8. Later in Acts 19, we have somewhat another example of this. But let's go to the next slide, at least for the moment. I've tried to summarize what we've discussed so far. The gift of the Holy Spirit was the miraculous measure, the miraculous bestowal of the power of the Holy Spirit, received by the laying on of the hands of an apostle. That's what Peter was asserting that glorious day of Pentecost. Now at this point, we perhaps would do well to revisit the book of 1 Corinthians. That church, you see, has much to tell us about the nature of our discussion so far. In 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse number 7, early in that book we encounter this. Paul writing to them said, So that ye come behind in no gift, waiting for the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now notice Paul refers to a gift and asserts that it was his desire that the church in Corinth not come behind in a gift. What did he mean? We now know exactly what he meant. He meant that he or an apostle, another apostle, could come in Corinth, lay hands on those people... And they, of course, would then be the recipients of the miraculous measure of the Holy Spirit. As we and I develop that even more thoroughly, turn to chapter 12, 1 Corinthians 12. And the first verse in that chapter reads as follows. Now concerning spiritual gifts, brethren, I would not have you ignorant. This church had some very good questions about the usage of spiritual gifts. At this point, notice immediately what occurs near the beginning of that chapter. I'll jump down to verse number 4. Now, there are diversities of gifts, but the same Spirit. And there are differences of administrations, but the same Lord. And there are diversities of operations, but it is the same God which worketh all in all. Now, listen carefully, please. But the manifestation of the Spirit is given to every man to profit with all. For to one is given by the Spirit the word of wisdom, to another the word of knowledge by the same Spirit, to another faith by the same Spirit, to another the gifts of healing by the same Spirit, to another the working of miracles, to another prophecy, to another discerning of spirits, to another, divers kinds of tongues. To another, the interpretation of tongues. We have just been given a listing of nine things that were the gift of the Holy Spirit. Did you notice that's the word that Paul used? Verse 1, they're called gifts. Verse 4, they're called gifts. Verses 5 and 6, they're referred to in that same way. And now he lists them, nine of them. There isn't a one of us today that have any of them. None of us have supernatural knowledge. None of us have supernatural wisdom. None of us have this gift of healing. None of us have this gift that's described by supernatural faith. None of us can work the miracles, speak in tongues. All nine of them, called gifts, are con connected to the Holy Spirit. 
It says they're all by virtue of the same Spirit. The Spirit made them available. But you and I, of course, now easily understand this. Those gifts passed away in history. They were for a particular time and place. They were for an era that has long since passed. That era is something we'll discuss in some detail in just a moment. But appreciate the gift of the Holy Spirit referenced in Acts 2.38 referred to the reception of the miraculous measure that would come by the laying on of the hands of an apostle. Near the bottom of that slide, would you appreciate the unity then of a number of other passages that touch this subject? Early in the book of Romans, Romans 1.11, Paul in writing to that congregation had these words to say, For I long to see you. Why? Why was Paul so interested in visiting personally the church at Rome? The verse goes on to say this, That I may impart unto you some spiritual gift. To the end you may be established. Paul there clearly said, I want to come visit you that I may impart a gift to you. Now, putting together what we've learned already tonight, we now know how Paul would do that. He'd lay his hands on them, each one of them individually. They would thus receive the miraculous measure of the Holy Spirit. That's why Paul wanted to come. It was not something he could do from long distance. He couldn't send them a letter and do this. He needed to visit them in person. This gift of the Holy Spirit then perhaps leads us to that next observation. It again is this. With our understanding that the gift of the Holy Spirit related carefully to the miraculous measure of the Holy Spirit, that miraculous measure is not available to you and me anymore. Look at 1 Corinthians 13. Very next chapter after the one we just noted a moment ago. Verse thir- chapter 13, verse number 8. Charity never faileth, but whether there be prophecies, they shall fail. Whether there be tongues, they shall cease. Whether there be knowledge, it shall vanish away. For we know in part, and we prophesy in part, but when that which is perfect is come, then that which is in part shall be done away. Paul listed three of the nine. And of course, that's a reference to the full inclusiveness of the list. He says, look, knowledge is going to cease. Tongues shall vanish away. In other words, he's teaching that church in Corinth. Right now, you have this miraculous measure of the Holy Spirit, but it's not going to last permanently. But there is something that will. It's love. It's the truth of the gospel. It is what shall continue onward. In light of all of that, the bottom statement on that slide, this gift of the Holy Spirit as it's referenced in Acts 2.38 is not available to you and me today. So again, going back to the first part of the lesson, I asked, so can people receive the gift of the Holy Spirit today? The answer is no. In that miraculous measure, nobody can receive it because that age of miracles is no longer with us. But I would be quick to say this, and this in many ways leads to the very last section of the lesson tonight. It has to do with, there's another usage in the New Testament of the word gifts. Notice it's plural. So far our study has been the gift singular of the Holy Spirit. What does the Bible mean when it refers to various gifts? 
plural that Christians may have. I thought it right at least to close our lesson with that brief observation since this is something that does touch each of us. It begins like this. Every one of us as Christians does enjoy a close association with the Holy Spirit, but that does not mean the Spirit equips us to do miraculous things. In Hebrews chapter 6, verse number 4, it reads like this. Hebrews chapter 6, verse number 4. For it is impossible for those who were once enlightened and have tasted of the heavenly gift and are made partakers of the Holy Ghost. Every one of us who is a Christian, every one of us who has then been immersed into Christ, we've tasted of the Holy Spirit. That is to say, we've tasted of what He's made available to us. That's a reference to the beauty of salvation, the forgiveness of sin. But it goes on to say, we have been made partakers of the Holy Ghost. Now you and I know what it means to partake of something. When we partake of the Lord's Supper, the bread... We take part of it. Well, notice that verse is teaching us that there is a very real way in which you and I are partakers of the Holy Spirit. May I say it this way? The Holy Spirit dwells in us. I'm going to devote a whole lesson in this series to that. So I'm not going to try to do that in, in a moment or two to close this one, but we're going to talk about the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. What does that mean and how does it happen? So you'll have to hold on until we get to that lesson. But for right now, could I say this? We have passages that remind us about the usage of our various talents in service to God. That is to say, using what skills we do have in a way that would be respectful to the will of heaven and that would be those that would be faithful to, to the call of the Master. And so, for example, in 1 Peter 4, verse number 10, we read this verse referring to the gifts you and I have. Now, remember, these are non-miraculous. It says, "...as every man hath received the gift, even so minister the same one to another, as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. If any man speak..." Let him speak as the oracles of God. If any man minister, let him do it as of the ability which God giveth, that God in all things may be glorified through Jesus Christ, to whom be praise and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Peter again lists a couple of things. So anybody that speaks, that would certainly include those that attempt to preach or those that attempt to teach Bible class, if you speak, make sure that you speak what is the oracles of God. Human opinion and human speculation is of no value when it comes to this. But notice he goes on to say, if any man minister, whatever particular skill or talent you and I have, that verse encourages us to make sure we use it in a way that would bring glory and praise and dominion and honor to God who gave it to us. It's the Spirit that has made it available. Isn't that a grand thought? In the midst of all of that discussion, that consideration, there is one additional passage in Acts 19. I'll use that to close the lesson tonight. In Acts 19, beginning in verse number 1, we encounter another reference to the Holy Spirit. 
and it's a very intriguing one to be sure. I think it solidifies in a beautiful way much of our discussion tonight. So let me read beginning in verse 1. And it came to pass that while Apollos was at Corinth, Paul, having passed through the upper coast, came to Ephesus. And finding certain disciples, he said unto them, Have ye received the Holy Ghost since ye believed? And they said unto him, We have not so much as heard whether there be any Holy Ghost. And he said unto them, Unto what then were ye baptized? And they said, Unto John's baptism. Then said Paul, John verily baptized with the baptism of repentance, saying unto the people that they should believe on him which should come after him, that is, on Christ Jesus. When they heard this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. And when Paul had laid his hands on them, the Holy Ghost came on them, and they spake with tongues and prophesied. It seems to me that explains it about as well as any of the verses. Here was a group of people a number of disciples that Paul found in Ephesus. Now, in instantly a conversation developed. In verse number 2, Paul said, Have you received the Holy Spirit? And they quickly replied, Well, you hadn't even heard whether there is a Holy Spirit or not. That immediately clued Paul in to ask them about baptism. What then, to what were you baptized? Paul knew when they answered what they did about the Holy Spirit that there was a problem with their baptism. They confirmed his suspicion. They said, we were baptized to John's baptism. Paul quickly said, John did baptize, but he pointed to one coming after him, one that was greater than him. Notice that Paul would now baptize them into the name of Christ. Doesn't that remind us of Matthew 28, verses 19 and 20? I baptize you in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. There it is, the Holy Spirit. And so you'll notice that after that, verse 6 then says, after He baptized them. So now they were already saved now. But it says He laid His hands on them. The Holy Spirit came on them, and they spake with tongues and prophesied. So one more time, the gift of the Holy Spirit, you'll notice, was not directly the same as their salvation. They were already saved. That happened at baptism. And then Paul laid hands on them and conferred upon them the ability to speak in tongues and to prophesy. Let's close our lesson tonight. We have studied about the gift of the Holy Spirit. We have found that our discussion attaches that everywhere it occurs to what was miraculous. And therefore, in that first century age, it was vitally important for the well-being of the church, for its ongoing growth, and for the thing that God demanded of it. But that miraculous measure has passed. It is not available to mankind today. Nobody can be baptized and thus claim they receive this miraculous measure of the gift of the Holy Spirit. It doesn't work that way anymore. The miraculous measure has ceased. We read that in 1 Corinthians 13, 8. And so as we close our lesson, we could remind ourselves, though, we each should use the various gifts, non-miraculous, that we've been given in a way to glorify and honor the God that we love and serve. Tonight, then, may we offer the Lord's invitation. If there's anyone in the audience and you're not a New Testament Christian, 
You're not an individual who has allowed your sins to be washed away by the blood of the Lamb, by the blood of Christ in the act of baptism. We want you to know that's what the Lord taught, and it's what all of His faithful apostles taught. And it's what we in love continue to insist today, not because it's our idea, but because it's what He said. He did say that, "...except ye believe I am He, ye shall die in your sins." John 8, 24. He said, "...nay, except ye repent, ye shall all likewise perish." Luke 13, 3. He also stated in Matthew chapter 10, verses 38 and 39, about the necessity of confession. Those who will not confess me, I will deny before my Father. And finally, He said in Mark 16, 16, that you must be baptized and you'll be saved. Tonight, if that would be the need and the wish for your life, we would love to help you. We'd love to, in fact, assist you in obeying in a simple way those commandments of the New Testament. May I suggest, though, that even after becoming a Christian, you may stumble, you may fall, you may find the temptations of the devil will become even stronger, and thus you may find need to come back to your first love. Now notice, this miraculous gift is not available either to you or me or anyone else today. But we do want to be faithful servants of God. Tonight, if we could assist in rededicating your life by praying to God on your behalf, we would love to do that. It would be our privilege and joy. May I say, if you will confess and repent of those things, God has promised to forgive them. 1 John 1, verses 8 and 9. If we could be of help in any of these ways tonight, we would love to do that at once while together we stand and while we sing.